Hi, I'm Scott, and welcome to the second series of Child in Time, Growing Up in the 60s. First of all, thanks everyone for your support. And after looking at my end of year stats, I want to shout out to all my listeners, especially those in the UK, the USA, Brazil, Malaysia, and many other countries as well. We are just so thrilled with all this, and we promise to keep these episodes coming, and I don't know why I'm saying we, it's just me. Anyway, please spread the word, and give me a five-star review so people can find the show, and tell at least one other person that you think might enjoy it. Thank you. This time, we're talking about childhood fears. Fears that were all our own, and some that adults try to instill in us to keep us safe, etc. Of course, childhood fears are not something unique to the 1960s, but that's a lens we are looking through in this show. It is said that humans are born with only two natural fears. All the rest we acquire. Those two fears we all have... Yes. Have a guess. Well, fear of falling is one. And the other natural fear is a fear of loud noises. For example, if there was a loud thunderclap out of the blue, you would startle. A very loud noise might include danger. So, your fear of clowns, snakes, public speaking, injections, germs... Or being kidnapped by aliens is all your own work. Let's look at just a few of the more common childhood fears. Monsters under the bed. The exact form of myriad nasty creatures that lived under your bed was limited only by your imagination. In my research, there appears to be quite a few underbed residents back then. Monsters, snakes, boogeymen, even a Dalek have all been reported to me as lying in wait to grab a small ankle and haul you under as you exited your bed. The Dalek would have had to be side on, surely. Anyway, someone reported to me that all through their childhood, they would leap out of bed out and away from the reach of an arm or a tentacle. Say, that's a pretty good idea, actually. Me? Under my bed, it was the boogeyman, or bogeyman, who I imagined as a small, rotund, middle-aged guy wearing a grey overcoat. He looked like an old-fashioned shop steward. Not very scary, to be honest. Just on the boogeyman thing, all societies all over the world have similar figures with various names that parents use to scare children if they are naughty. In the English-speaking world, world, world <laughs> it's the boogeyman. There does not appear to be a bogey woman in this mythology. Maybe there is. She is possibly his stay-at-home wife. I don't know. When I was about eight, 
our parents got us new beds as our old beds had done too much extra duty as makeshift trampolines and had had it. Our new beds had big drawers underneath, so the boogeyman had nowhere to lie in wait. Whenever we were walking along with our mum, we would love to pick up anything at all on the grass or footpath that appeared to be in any way interesting. It could be an empty packet, a bit of plastic, uh, anything at all, really. But as we bent down to examine our prize, Mum would always say the same thing. Don't touch that. Why not, Mum? A dirty old man might have spat on it. Uh, We'd be reluctantly obliged to obey and keep walking. Ah, what's this shiny piece of metal I see up ahead? Don't touch it, Scotty. A dirty old man might have spat on it. Now, I never saw this unseen battalion of elderly men who, with seemingly perfect aim, would spit contaminated every small object in every public area of my suburb and beyond. I imagine there would have had to be some organisation to it. A ragtag group of elderly, unwashed men, all with chronic respiratory diseases, would probably assemble at a local park. Their severely congested leader would send them out to designated spit areas. Bronchitis, Bob. Zone one today. You take that. Coffin, Colin. Zone two for you. Emphysemia, Eric. How's your phlegm today, champion? Great. Now I expect much expectoration from you all. Now get out there and spit. As I've said in a previous episode, the 60s were the golden era of tooth decay in kids. No fluoride in the water and our school canteen consisted almost exclusively of sugary treats. One trip to the dentist revealed I had 10 cavities. Dentistry is not the ordeal now as it was back then. Unlike today, you'd be giving, given a temporary filling and would have to return for the permanent one a week later and spend more time in the chair. Often, anaesthetic was deemed superfluous, and they used that old drill, not the high-pitched speed one. It was on pulleys and created this horrible vibration in the skull. Lots of kids were scared of the dentist. In the 60s, it was often a painful experience. Also, and this came as a big shock to us, The dentist we saw as kids was a bad guy. When he retired, the new dentist who had taken over the practice showed us x-rays, revealing that our original dentist would fill our cavities, but crucially would deliberately leave some decay in the bottom of the tooth as a way of ensuring future visits when the inevitable toothache took hold the following year or so. Our new dentist apologised and said that there were unscrupulous people in all professions, unfortunately. Mm. I'm tempted to name and shame our original dentist, but I won't, just on the off chance he's still alive. 
I reckon he'd be about 120 by now. But I don't want to take a chance. I, I, I don't want to get sued. Ever since I can remember, I've always loved reading the news and staying up to date with what's happening in the world. But in late 1962, whoa, I read the news today, oh boy. Historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called the Cuban Missile Crisis the most dangerous moment in human history. Scholars and politicians agree that for several days the world was the closest it had ever come to nuclear Armageddon. I think you'll agree that fear of the complete destruction of civilization as we know it by thermonuclear explosions is scarier than thunder, lightning, the dark, being kidnapped, underbed monsters, anything. And we were very close indeed. One of our great aunts lived near Sydney Harbour and said that several of her neighbours had sold their houses and moved out of town. Such was their fear of the conviction that a war was imminent and that Sydney would be a prime target, Cuban Missile Crisis or not. Now, I was a child when all this was going down, but I was scared, and I could sense the fear in my parents too. We were on the brink. If you're unaware of the details of the crisis, which was essentially a standoff between the USA and Russia regarding the installation of nuclear missiles in Cuba, which is only 90 miles from the US mainland, I suggest you find out more about it. The recent book, Abyss by Max Hastings, gives a very good account of it all. And uh, I read it recently. Or, okay, as is often pointed out to me, no, you didn't read it, Scott. Someone read it to you. Okay, it was an audio book. Also, a constant disturbing background drop to the 60s was the war in Vietnam. It didn't end until 1975. And from 1967 to 1971, it was common to see American servicemen in Sydney. A total of over 300,000 US military personnel took a week off from the war to have some R&R in Australia. The war itself was very divisive, and there was much opposition to Australians' involvement fighting alongside the USA and other nations. The justification of sending our army was something called the domino effect. The Prime Minister of Australia from 1949 to 1966 was Robert Menzies. Many times I saw him on TV explaining the domino effect. It went like this. If Vietnam was to fall to the communists, then so would the next country and the next until the next country was us. The communists were a threat to us if we didn't stop them in Vietnam. I, even as a small boy, understood all this. I saw clips on the news of the horrors of the fighting in Vietnam. It was scary. Fear was instilled. But like many or most things we fear might happen, it didn't. Being one of four boys, we would get very boisterous at times and Mum used a tactic to try and get us to behave. Mum often tried to instill the fear of being sent to the bad boys' home. That's where bad boys ended up. She was always necessarily vague on the details of the home. 
except to say that it was far away in the country and that it was not the place to be sent. The fact that it was always referred to as the bad boy's home was integral to the threat. A home implies a level of permanence that just would not have been there had Mum threatened to send us to the bad boy's overnight accommodation or the bad boy's bed and breakfast. As a postscript to the bad boy's home thing, when we were a bit older, entering adolescence and becoming interested in girls, I asked Mum once, You know, Mum, when you said you were going to send us to the bad boy's home, remember you even performed that pantomime of pretending to call the home if we were supposed to assume that the home had a pickup service. Yes, Scotty. Well, Mum, it stands to reason that there would have been a female equivalent. The bad girl's home. Where's that located, Mum? Thanks for listening. It's great to be back. Uh, you can contact through contact me through my socials and we'll talk soon. Bye.